As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show, an hour review of the Champions League semi-final second legs in Villarreal versus Liverpool and Real Madrid versus Man City. I'm afraid we had some pretty dull affairs. Very little happened. Not much to see. Certainly not to the most drilling European semi-final conclusions we've ever seen. Nope, nope, nope. Thank goodness, I say, for UEFA's plans to get rid of these boring two-legged Champions League semi-finals. Europe's governing body definitely has its finger on the pulse here. More group stage games, please. Anyway, my name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who is clutch, but not as clutch as a team that makes the Champions League final after having its first shot on target in the <laughs> 90th minute. Taylor Rockwell, hello. Hello, I will take that comparison because, man, what a game that was, what a performance. That was just super fun yesterday. I enjoyed every minute. Yes, we are talking, of course, about Real Madrid's victory over Manchester City. Spoiler alert if you didn't see it already. Apologies, apologies. Why listen to this podcast if you hadn't, I guess, right, Taylor? (laughs) I mean, yeah, I I think if you're listening to the review episode, it stands to reason. You're either okay with spoilers, uh, did not click the read the title, or uh, (laughs) or maybe have watched the game. But either way, welcome, and I'm excited to talk about these games. Welcome, everybody, and welcome. Our colleague joining us is a man who, unlike Villarreal, has the stamina to get through the entirety of the task ahead of him, Joe Lowry. Hello, sir. (laughs) Villarreal really did run out of gas there in that second half. That was such a good game, and and coming into Wednesday, I thought, okay, maybe City-Real Madrid will, will beat that, but then as we were moving through that first half and even well into the second half, in Madrid, I thought, okay, on today's show, it's just going to be mostly Villarreal-Liverpool talk, and, and we're going to dive into that game really deep, and we're still going to do that, but then Rodrigo went and did what Rodrigo went and did, and did ridiculous things, and I could not, I honestly could not turn my TV off. I don't generally, like, stick around to watch the post-game shows and, and just, you know, the celebrations on the field, I'm kind of on to the next thing, but I, I could not look away. It was mesmerizing. That was one of the best games of soccer I've ever seen. Uh, so not sticking around for the post-game show, you you missed Jamie Carragher downing Heineken's live on TV. <laughs> exactly. That's a shame for you. Heaven forbid. Um, Heaven forbid. And what is, uh, my follow-up question, what is the thing you move on to straight afterwards? Is it ping-pong? You've told us before we came on air that you're a ping-pong maestro. I do, okay, maybe, maybe maestro's a little bit strong, but I do like ping-pong quite a bit. It's not usually my immediate post-game habit, but Ryan, oh boy, it should be. 
It should be indeed. Rounding out our pack, Joe, we've got a man who is ahead of re-admirers for the amount of Twitter blue check marks he has, and he's equally re-admirers for the number of Champions League finals he's going to be appearing in in a matter <laughs> of weeks. Graham Ruthven, hello. Hello. I mean, it's it's a low bar. It, it, it's, it's a low bar with Riyad Mahrez and the number of Champions League finals that he's going to be appearing in. Regarding the check marks, Ryan, aren't you the one that is uh, that's uh, verified on Instagram? Like you're some sort of influencer or something? Maybe. Why do you ask? <laughs> how? <laughs> <laughs> do you not know, you know who you're talking to, Graham? Oh, a Kardashian? <laughs> a Jenner? Something like that. <laughs> I'm going to pretend I know what that is because I'm in touch with the kids and whatnot. Um, anyway, Graham, we have to talk about the Champions League and we're going to be talking about the CONCACAF Champions League as well later on in the show. We cannot, uh, it will be remiss not to talk about the Sounders and their victory as well. Um, but to, to talk about the European competition, Graham, it just doesn't miss, does it? In terms of the semi finals, are they, I, I can't remember a semi final where it wasn't pretty wild. It seems like they always are now. Yeah, I think I said this a few weeks ago, but they are reliably Champions League semi-finals. They are reliably the most dramatic and thralling games in, in the whole season. And I tweeted last night saying, I swear these games used to be boring. And I, and I got a few replies back saying about away goals. And yes, maybe that has been a factor this season because this season's semi-finals have been even wilder than usual. But I'm talking about the last five seasons. You think of 28-19, you had the, the Ajax... Uh, Spurs semi-final, you had mm. the Spurs City quarter-final um, there's been Barcelona PSG games, it seems like these knockout round games in the Champions League it, it feels like the caution has been thrown out of the window, it used to be I remember between about 2000 and 2010 all knockout Champions League games were, were pretty tight and teams would try and keep it uh, you know, compact at the back and they would try and nick a goal, I don't know what happened but uh, maybe this is an explanation as to why Jose Mourinho hasn't won a Champions League since 2010 because mm. that method used to work for him now and the game has just completely changed and it's much more entertaining for it, by the way, I should say this. This is uh, this style should stay. I, I hope it doesn't disappear. I'm here for it, definitely. But I guess um, the final itself, Graham, generally not as hot as these knockout games. You would ordinarily think so, but Real Madrid and Liverpool, I'm not sure if they've got it within themselves to ha to produce a boring game. Maybe I've just jinxed it, but those those two teams are the only really... I was going to say they only have one way of playing, but that's not necessarily true with Liverpool. But if they play to their be the best of their ability, it feels like they're going to be attack-minded, and Real Madrid are certainly attack-minded. So I just can't see how that's going to be a boring game either. All right, Izzy Wizzy, let's get busy with the first of the games on Tuesday. Villarreal 2, Liverpool 3, a 5-2 win on aggregate for Liverpool, who are heading to Paris, as Jamie Carragher slightly drunkenly told us uh, on the CBS post-game show, <laughs> in which he asked LeBron to come with him as well. That was fun. Um, they are six-time winners. They're going to their 10th final here. Jurgen Klopp's third Champions League final in five seasons as well. Uh, Opta Joe saying Liverpool become the first ever English club to reach the final of the European Cup, the Champions League, the FA Cup and the League Cup in the same season. Taylor, this Liverpool game, uh, this Liverpool team are playing the maximum number of games possible this season for them. 63. They've only lost three so far. Will they lose any more? Mm. 
I mean, I, I like their chances in the final. Uh, I was a little bit nervous for them at moments in the first half of this game, and then they came out in the second half and erased uh, those moments of anxiety. Uh, and that was, for me, a neutral slash maybe slightly anti-Liverpool person. Uh, but I think for a lot of Liverpool fans, this was sort of why they like this team so much, why they love this team so much, because you never really count them out. You can always back them to end up fighting, to end up fighting a way through. And I think also that Luis Diaz comes on and has such an impact is another reminder of how good their recruitment has been so overall I think this team is deserving of their place in as many cup finals as they want to be in and they are in plenty that's for sure <laughs> it uh, does seem that way yeah pretty one-sided first leg I think it's fair to say but VRL definitely made a contest of this one they took the lead through uh, uh Dia after three minutes uh doubled the lead before halftime through Francis Coquelin but then Fabinho Luis Diaz the aforementioned and Sergio Mane making it 5-2 across the fixture Joe what did you make of this one what did Villarreal do right when they came out swinging in the first half here? Yeah, they, they really did come out swinging, Ryan. They were clearly the better team in that first half, and they had Liverpool all the way back on their heels. There's, there's a lot of talk about what Villarreal does on the ball, which, which is important, and that was a huge part of this game, and it was lovely bits of buildup for both goals and, and possession even outside of that. They were playing very, very well with the ball in this game. Not perfect, but well. But for me, the, the thing that specifically they did well that wasn't there in the first leg that really changed this game around was actually Villarreal's defending. Not their deep 4-4-2 block defending like we saw for stretches earlier on in this tournament, although there was that. They were stepping forward. They were aggressive. They were high-pressing, and they were forcing a ton of turnovers from Liverpool. And they were also really aggressive and smart with their mid-block pressure. So, so they weren't always extending all the way out, all the way up the field against Liverpool. That's not a good idea all the time. So they would be more compact at times. They would sit a little bit deeper, and then they would choose their moments to go and press. And when they pressed, they were all in. And Liverpool, for their part, couldn't handle it. They looked shell-shocked. They looked like they were the ones playing Liverpool in this game, which is just a totally backwards kind of thing. But even on the first goal, it's, it's Diaz's goal that you mentioned there, Ryan, in the third minute. Villarreal win the ball after pressing. Then they attack quickly down the right side. Then they move the ball over to the left after a cross. There's a lovely ball in from Estupinan to, to Capu at the back post. And then it's a square for Dia, who shoots and scores the one-time shot. Then the second goal that Coughlin scores in the 41st is a counter-pressing moment. That Villarreal win the ball back in the attacking half. They recycle possession and they move the ball from side to side. And then it's Capu getting the ball on the right side of the box and, and picking out Coughlin at the back post for a header. It was the pressure that started those sequences and then so seamlessly transitioned into really good on-ball work, which was very clearly a main theme of this game as well. And those things combined, although I do think it started with the defensive work, really put Liverpool in a tough spot after the first 45. It's, it's unfortunate for Villarreal that they couldn't finish the job in the second half. So, so, Joe, what what happened in the second half of Villarreal? Then it seemed like, um, you know, they didn't quite press as much as they did in the first half. Emery maybe yeah. switching up a little bit, becoming a bit more defensive. Uh, perhaps a mistake against this kind of team. Yeah, the second half is a tough one. I think part of it is Villarreal getting tired. But you're absolutely right, Ryan. They do defend a little deeper, and they certainly weren't able to get as much pressure on the ball. And I, I think that totally changed the game. Liverpool advanced. They were much more comfortable. And, and Liverpool deserve credit here as well. It was an extremely poor first half from them. And so certainly they are at least partly responsible for, for turning the tables. It's not just Villarreal collapsing. But I do think Villarreal not applying as much consistent, aggressive pressure to the ball hurt them. And then Liverpool taking over and, and Fabinho getting more touches and advancing off the ball, advancing on the ball, Thiago getting more involved. I think you could just see those tides change almost right after that the, the second half started. And I, yeah. I think the change that Klopp made as well at halftime had, had a 
had a big, big impact at halftime. I think we all knew that at least one change would be made, but I actually thought it would be in the midfield. I thought it would be Henderson for Naby Keita to, to provide a bit more leadership and physicality and also, frankly, just to get Keita off the pitch because he had been... He'd been terrible. He'd been very loose in, in possession. When he has... I'm actually a fan of Naby Keita and he has been in good form recently, but when he is bad, he tends to be really bad. And uh, so I, I was positive it was going to be a change in the midfield. Instead, it was Luis Diaz who comes on for Diego, J Diego Jota. And that made uh, a big difference. And what this did was it moved Sadio Mane into the middle, where obviously he's been playing recently. And then they put Luis Diaz out on the left. And Mane was just much more effective at dropping deep to help out in the centre of the pitch than, than Jota was. He, uh, he he was helping winning the ball back. He was pressing Villarreal and then also helping to main, maintain possession. Sorry, And Jota didn't really do any of this in the first half. And it's actually not the first time that I have noticed this sort of thing from him, Jota can sometimes be the odd one out for Liverpool in that he doesn't do a lot of dropping into the midfield. He sometimes, it seems like he he doesn't um, shoulder his his pressing responsibilities. I have seen him walking around with his with his arms on his on his, on his sides, you know, on his hips, and um, from time to time. I don't know whether that is something Klopp is okay with or if that is something that Klopp isn't very happy with. But it did feel like the right decision in hindsight for uh, for him to come off because his actions or inaction I should say certainly contributed to Liverpool being outnumbered in the middle of the pitch and I think so much of honestly both of these uh, second leg semi-finals are about teams trying to disrupt their opponent but then letting their opponent get back into this one and we'll talk about how that went down for Man City a little bit later but for Villarreal I think to come out and get that goal in the third minute to be as aggressive as they were I have it in my notes a couple different times in the first maybe 25 minutes or so that Villarreal just are making Liverpool uncomfortable they're pressing them as Joe talked about but they're also being really aggressive in the way they're attacking and I think it consistently prevented Liverpool from getting into the sort of passing rhythm that we've seen yeah. them get into. They never really got the, that front foot forward, and it took until the second half, and I think part of that is Villarreal being more conservative. Also, that change for Luis Diaz, and I think he's always a player that's just going to kind of take people on, try stuff, function within the system, but also still maintain that individual brilliance. And so, I think once Villarreal let Liverpool just get a little bit more comfortable, maybe it's a quarter second, a half second, a full second more time on the ball, they're going to be able to play their game, they're going to get into that rhythm and once that locomotive is going it is very difficult to stop and we saw that in the second half with uh a few goals uh in like the what like 30 minutes or so it was pretty much dead by the 74th minute when Mane gets that third goal for Liverpool yeah uh, Taylor so we've discussed the, the sort of changing tide mm -hmm. in the second half of this game we're putting it maybe down to Emery changing the tactics and to the changes that Jurgen Klopp made as well but this is something we sort of discussed uh, as a group when we were watching the game and I, I put it to you is that maybe it was it's a simplistic way of looking mm -hmm. at it, but just that Villarreal couldn't hang, basically. Just that um, that Liverpool performance in the first half, to me, it looked a lot like when they played Liverpool, uh, excuse me, when they played Newcastle at the weekend, a bit sluggish. And then suddenly at halftime, I don't know what Jurgen Klopp said, but they went up a gear. They brought the intensity mm -hmm. and it felt like Villarreal couldn't quite match that as well. Do you think that could have contributed as well? I, I think so. Certainly from a physical standpoint, if you were playing very aggressive, 
uh, like high energy, high tempo soccer for 45 minutes, you're going to be tired. So there's definitely an element of that. But I also think a, a larger part, and I hope this analogy will make sense, is is just about playing with confidence. And I equate it with cooking, that if you are cooking without recipes, if you're sort of going off of instinct, if you've made a dish a few times and now you're experimenting, you sort of, if you're in the right state of mind to cook, you know, like, oh, that flavor is going to work. Oh, I need to cook this side dish to balance that. And you sort of know what you're doing once you're feeling it. But if you start to burn one thing or you're not quite sure about this ingredient, you're, you're slowing down, you're second guessing. And maybe the thing that you normally would only let cook for five minutes because you're distracted, you're letting cook for seven minutes. And then mm-hmm. that gets overcooked. And now you've got to balance that. And it becomes this sort of domino effect of basically chaos. And I think that's what happened with Villarreal is that once Liverpool don't have to think, once they're able to play on instinct and play the very fluid, pressing, attacking game that we know they want to play, if you're a Villarreal and everybody's really confident, but then suddenly, oh, that guy got beat. Okay, we can't let that happen again, so now you've got to cheat over to help him. Oh, but that left that space. Oh, no. And then suddenly you're just out of that right mindset that you were in the first half. You're into a much more reactive mindset, and I think mm-hmm. you then can't play the quick passing game that they that they utilize to get out of Liverpool's press. You don't have some of the directness in the play because maybe you're just more ponderous on the ball or you're just trying to get rid and I think they slowly ceded control of this game some of that due to the physical demands of the game some of that due to mentality I would argue yeah and it also didn't help that they had a goalkeeper that was determined to live live up to his first name (laughs) I mean you know Graham I'm really glad you said that because I kind of amazingly forgot that that was a huge part of this because with everything I've said it is the case that a goalkeeper who doesn't get megged at his near post from 12 yards out from a relatively tight angle, who doesn't get megged again on a like backwards header, and then doesn't come 40 yards off his line to get beat, maybe, <laughs> maybe this, this game goes a different way. But I also think that plays into the... The, the recipe analogy of like if you're used to rice cooking normally and instead the rice is suddenly on fire, you don't really know what to do with that or how to handle it. And I have to imagine Villarreal, every time the ball went back to Rulli at a certain point in that second half, there was a feeling of like, is this going to be okay? Can he do this? Uh-oh. And again, it just disrupts that chemistry. I think I said this last week, but th- this performance just underlined what I said last week, that it was really strange, or it is really strange, that Villarreal under, under Emery are this very, very well-coached, team that have the capability of being compact and very defensively solid and then they have this frankly frankly a liability of a goalkeeper yeah. um especially when they have Sergio Asensio on 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 the bench and I admittedly don't watch Villarreal every single week so maybe he's made a mistake earlier in the season I don't really know but Asensio has a, a reputation for being a, a good La Liga level goalkeeper so I, I'm not really sure what's happened there it's it's it's, I'm not going to say it cost Villarreal the tie because you feel like Liverpool would have found the goals anyway and Villarreal obviously needed a third goal to actually win the tie and after halftime it never really felt like that was coming so I don't, I don't know, I wouldn't say it's the thing that totally decided the tie but it, it was a factor. It probably was. Who scored tweeting that Rulli has committed the most errors leading to an opposition goal across Europe's top five leagues, Champions League and Brutal. Europa League this season? <laughs> well, he committed yeah. like eight of them in this game so yeah, those numbers are going to add up. <laughs> yeah, he racked them up in this one, that's for sure. Um, Joe, well, I think, was it Jurgen Klopp who called the uh, Liverpool mentality monsters? And Graham mentioned the mentality of this team as well. Um, I think we, we we mentioned the mentality of this team. There's, we've got to give them a lot of credit there. But also, something I was getting at earlier is the fitness as well. I don't think we appreciate how gosh darn fit this team is. And when you combine that incredible fitness, they can go like that for 90 minutes with that mentality monster mentality if you'll allow me to tautology that sentence then you've got a pretty good combo joe 
they all flow together so well. And that's a huge part of what Jurgen Klopp has done at Liverpool is establish this identity. There's a reason, and this always struck me as weird when I first started watching and reading and, and hearing people talk about soccer. There's a reason why people talk about style and identity and, and how they want to play and philosophy. You don't really get that terminology in a lot of other sports, but I, I think it's something that soccer does well. That specific verbiage is key to how teams set themselves up and how clubs function. And Liverpool right now have a, as clear of an identity as anyone in soccer and, and in sports, I would argue. They are so aggressive in everything that they do, except the first 45 minutes. They're generally precise in what they're doing, and those things flow over into the mentality. They flow over into the tactical part of it. They certainly flow over into the fitness aspect. I mean, Thiago runs so much. Fabinho runs so much and is so smart with their... Both of those players are so smart with their angles. The, the third eight, whether it's Keita or whether it's Henderson, that player probably does the most running in central midfield. You move into the forward line, and you have legitimate superstars in that front line in Sadio Mane and Mo Salah. And, and Luis Diaz is, what, a half step away from that title? Maybe he's already there with, with Liverpool and, and certainly was very good in Portugal as well. Those players run. They are all clearly bought in to this system and what they're doing. And for me, it's going to be extremely difficult for anyone to take them down in the final. It's, it's I think, a favorable result for Liverpool and that they get Real Madrid and not Manchester City. Although Madrid have some sort of deal with the devil that we can talk about <laughs> later. I'm not exactly sure what's going on there. But Liverpool, Ryan, to your point and to your question, are incredibly well-drilled and aligned in their club philosophy. And I think that makes a huge difference. Indeed. Liverpool met a devil at the crossroads at some point, did they not, Joe? Um, Grant, you mentioned... Yeah, in the Champions League final. His name's Florentino <laughs> Perez. <laughs> Very good. Um, Graham, you mentioned Diego Jota earlier. Um, follow me mm-hmm. on this one. Have you seen the movie The Lady and the Tramp? <laughs> I have no idea where this is going. Yes, I have. Okay. So, Lady the dog is, um, she's, you know, she's she's the boss of that house, and then a, a new baby comes along, and uh-huh. Lady doesn't get any attention anymore. Louis, right. Okay. Luis Diaz is the baby. Yeah. Right. Okay. You follow I me got here? there eventually. Yeah. <laughs> wow. What a, what a link. But yeah, sure, that works. I suppose that <laughs> well, analogy. What I'm saying is, right. Diego Jota doesn't quite get the attention he deserves anymore. Because right. You some... have you have two children, right? Yes. And, and did you have a situation in which when maybe when the second one was born, the first one felt like uh, she wasn't getting as much attention? Like you didn't want to go with the personal analogy. You wanted to go with the extended Disney analogy. Stupid babies need the most attention, Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do like the idea that, that Jota is, is the, uh, the child who's been left to fend for himself. While, while Luis Diaz, <laughs> the adorable baby who does back heels and backwards headers, gets all the attention and applause. Yeah. I suppose I'm just reinforcing, Graham, that Lewis Diaz is the shiny new toy and he's doing a rather good job. Yeah. And last year's shiny new toy, not so much. And and also, I'm led to believe that Lewis Diaz doesn't speak a word of English like a baby. So I guess that <laughs> analogy works it carries, in a sense. It carries. It carries. And I've heard Diego Jota loves um, eating spaghetti in alleyways. <laughs> yeah, among <laughs> other things. <laughs> All right, we should probably park this game here. Liverpool going through to the Champions League final. When we come back after this break, let's talk about their opponent in that Champions League final, Real Madrid, and their adventure at the Bernabeu against Manchester City. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. 
Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We shall talk now about... Yeah, yeah, that's the appropriate noise for what's about to happen. Wednesday's game, Real Madrid 3, Manchester City 1. Real Madrid going through 6-5 to the Champions League final. Taylor, I was getting ready to call this one a scrappy Man City win. I feel sorry for all the journalists who were there, who in the 89th minute filing their copy. Man City going through to the Champions League final. And then that. We had had City taking the lead through Riyad Mahrez, of course. Real Madrid's first shot on target in the 90th minute from Rodrigo, uh, which turns into a goal, of course. He scores again seconds later. And then big Karen Benzema from the spot, uh, confirming Real Madrid's um, uh, place in the Champions League final in extra time. Uh, until this week, Real Madrid had never come from behind to win a semi-final in the Champions League or European Cup after losing the first leg, whether home or away. They were zero for eight in that stat, so now they've turned that one around. Uh, Taylor, let's not forget that Real Madrid have gone through PSG, Chelsea and Man City now mm. on their way to the final. Uh, yet... You could argue maybe not even the best team in all of those ties. <laughs> yes, you could. And I will say there are shades of the Manchester United treble team to this Real Madrid team. Just that that Man United team uh, was consistently making their lives harder for themselves. I think that's what, what's said in the final when Bayern Munich scores is like Manchester United, as they've done time and time again on this European campaign, have made it difficult for themselves. That feels like Real Madrid. They have to sort of put their backs up against the wall, have something to overcome, and then they overcome it quite excellently. And I think credit to Rodrigo, obviously, and to Benzema for the goal, but also to people like Ferland Mendy, who has that amazing goal line clearance in, what, like the 87th minute? Mm. And I think the commentator, or at least the U.S. commentator, said, like, an amazing uh, clearance, like, maybe you won't have an impact, but still, like, a great play. And then, if he doesn't (laughs) do that, they don't get those two goals, or they're down three, and it's a very different game. So I think that's sort of never-say-die attitude that Madrid seemed to have fully embraced. And somehow Carlo Ancelotti just throwing every single attacker onto the pitch and it not being a problem. I don't understand how that worked either, but it, it, but it did, and it wasn't an issue. And here we are, Real Madrid. Turns out pretty good at this whole European Cup sort of thing. They're not bad at it, yeah. Nah. And that Jack, Jack Grealish um, shot, which was saved off the line, pretty much the turning point of this game late yeah. as it was, as you say, Tete. Um, Joe, did, Man- uh, did excuse me, Real Madrid deserve to go through in this one? City probably dominated both games. City did play too badly up until the 89th minute of this one as well. Um, but this is, this is just Real Madrid's competition, as Taylor says, isn't it? It really is. As far as whether or not they deserve to go through, I don't even know at this point, Ryan. I I (laughs) thought I knew, and I thought I knew after the PSG tie, and and clearly I didn't know then. And then the whole Chelsea thing happens, and they they do end up making it past them, even though they made their lives a lot more difficult in 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 those couple of games than it needed to be. And then this time around, which I thought was absolutely done. City was the better team in the first leg. They let Real Madrid have a little too much leeway, likely, in in that first leg. And then in this one, it was a pretty even game. It wasn't like Manchester City was dominant in this one, but they i mean, they were in a strong position headed into the last six minutes of stoppage time, and I guess the 90th minute as well. Let's add that on there for seven minutes. And then just all hell breaks loose, right? It's complete chaos. 
And I, I don't think Real Madrid... Well, let me, let me rephrase. Real Madrid aren't this tactical, you know, extremely dominant team. That's just not who they are under Carlo Ancelotti. And, and they won La Liga without being a really tactical and, and consistently effective, well-drilled team. But they are a team that has an incredible amount of talent. And Vinicius Jr., I thought, had some really good moments in this game. He also had one of the weirdest moments of this game. Guys, did you notice on Manchester City's goal in this, in this match, in the second half, Vinicius Jr. is on a complete walkabout. He's running away from the play on Riyad Mahrez's goal in the 73rd minute. It is totally bizarre. I spent about five minutes trying to figure out what was happening, and I still have no idea. He's running towards City's back line like his team has help. the ball when they very much do not have the ball, and he leaves tons of space open on the left side for Madrid that Bernardo Silva gets into. Anyway, was it a B, Taylor? Was it a B that he saw and he's running away? That was it. it. That was it. Joe, yeah, I can't believe you didn't see the gigantic B that chased him around. No, I was really curious about this too, both for the goal and other moments in the first half especially, uh, because Madrid, I think in their defensive shape, Joe, uh, feel free to disagree at any point, but what I saw was them dropping into like a 4-4-1-1 with Modric as the kind of the second furthest forward. Benzema stayed high. Vinicius Jr., Fede Valverde dropping on either side. But Valverde, I think, had defensive responsibilities and did actually like cover cover men played inside became an outside fullback when he needed to be excuse me a, a, a wide back or an outside back just to annoy all of our British listeners um and, but I think uh, by contrast I think Vinicius is just there for the counter and I saw him always jogging and sort of maybe being 60 to 70 percent speed he was never really pressuring and I don't think that's what he was asked to do I think he was there to be that sort of like short to mid-range passing outlet option who could then turn and go. So I think he's nominally there to be a defensive body, but mostly there to be there for the counter to facilitate that attack and maybe keep uh, City just a little bit more honest with the numbers they were committing forward. But it did lead to moments like that goal when he is just, yeah, maybe doing what he's being asked to do or maybe being chased by a B. Either one seems (laughs) as as possible based on his defensive effort. I just, that, that play baffled me. Taylor, I agree with everything you just said. He was clearly Real Madrid's counterattacking outlet on that left side, and he and Kyle Walker had some great battles in this game. That was a hugely entertaining matchup before Kyle Walker goes off. But in that moment, he's cheating so high yep. up the field when he really shouldn't be. <laughs> and that just blew my mind. I thought something had, had uh, some sort of switch had flipped in his brain, and he got confused, or maybe he's colorblind. I don't know yeah. what the deal is there, but all <laughs> that to say, <laughs> go ahead, Sorry. go ahead. I was going to say, his approach to defending is like... Uh, the age-old approach to making a dry martini. It's like you pour the gin into the glass and then you look at a bottle of vermouth. He was just looking at the defending and being like, yeah, not for me, not for me. Counterattacking, that's for me. (laughs) It's not Vinny's thing. So all that to say, Ryan, to circle all the way back, I don't don't know if Real Madrid deserved this or not. At this point, it feels extremely foolish to bet against this team, and they deserve so much credit for coming back in this game and being a consistent thorn in everybody's side in this entire competition. It feels like they're destined to win this thing. All that said, I know I said Liverpool would win earlier, and I, I do stand by that. Graham, what are your thoughts on this Real Madrid team? I'll, let me ask you this, Graham, actually. Do you think City, do you think Pep Guardiola, with his head in his hands, probably still at this moment, he's sort of thinking the what-ifs? What if Carl Walker was fit for this entire game? Yeah. Because he did seem to have a huge impact in it. And the other what-if I would ask if I was Pep is, what if Casemiro got one of the several red cards he earned in this game? <laughs> I mean, Casemiro famously wears an invisibility cloak, Ryan. So that is the reason why he didn't get a yellow or a red. Certainly in the first half where he committed two blatant yellow card fouls uh, quite 
uh, in quick, quick quick succession. Sorry, difficult to say that. Um, and somehow avoided a booking. Kyle Walker, yes, he was a, a huge figure for this uh, this City team. He comes off after 72 minutes with an aggravation of his injury. Obviously, he misses the first leg, which is why Fernandinho ends up playing it right back for that first leg. And City conceded six goals over the two legs uh, when um, Kyle Walker wasn't playing. And for the, the 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 seventy-two minutes that he was on the pitch, they didn't concede any at all. So maybe maybe there's something in that to to read into. He certainly gives them a lot of recovery pace, and against Real Madrid, that's very important. And Vinicius had a, a tough time against him when he was on the pitch, and there was a there was one particular instance towards the end of the first half where it looked like Vinicius might just have a yard on on Walker, and he bursts into the box as he tends to do. But Walker gets back and he makes a, a really solid slide tackle, and that just wasn't happening in the first leg and uh, after he comes off it feels like Real Madrid get a, a lot of joy as well but I honestly am at a loss to explain this Real Madrid team and what happened in this match because until the 90th minute I actually thought City had played a pretty clever match they had, they had controlled things they'd limited Real Madrid they generally held them at arm's length and um, as as all three of you have already said Real Madrid kind of doing a deal with the devil um, two late goals as they've done against PSG and Chelsea as well so is it a fluke I don't know if you can say it is a fluke but I, th- I think um, it was a strange strange match and you're putting it down to small things as to why City lost not things that really cost them to get cost them the game so I swear I found the the changes made by Guardiola a bit strange at the time um, in the second half but I didn't think it was going to cost them the game um, and I, I know there's the Grealish opportunity that you've mentioned where it comes off the line, but I, I, it felt like City kind of took their, their foot off Real Madrid's throat when we've learned this season that you can't afford to do that and you need to kill off Real Madrid. And, and the fact of the matter is that they didn't do that. They gave them an opportunity to get back into the game. And I thought the changes changed the focus of the team. I know people will say, well, Jack Grealish comes on and he's an attacking player, but Jack Grealish's game is all about getting the ball into feet and standing up defenders. And I just think Real Madrid, for them, that's that's slightly easier for the profile of team that they have. It's easier to defend against him than someone that's trying to get in behind and trying to stretch them. And there was the opportunity for City to do that in the final 15 minutes when Real Madrid are trying to press for a goal. They, there was space for them to get in behind. But having said that, <laughs> those changes really shouldn't have changed the game much. And up until the 90th minute, Real Madrid hadn't had a single shot. So bizarre. Um, Graham, have you seen The Little Mermaid? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Are we going through the whole classic uh, Disney archive here? Yes, I have seen The Little Mermaid. So in The Little Mermaid, there's this mermaid called Jack Grealish who um, <laughs> who doesn't score in the 87th minute to make it 2-0 and then does some very, very bad defending for the goal for the other okay. team at 2-1. And uh, the king of the ocean blames everything on Jack Grealish. Is that fair? Is that not is that not Little Mermaid two? I think that might have went straight yeah, to DVD. That one, one. Yeah. Yeah. Little Mermaid yeah. two colon the jackening. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've seen that one, but I saw last night, so I don't need to watch that now. Can I just have a quick question? Uh, what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> what I'm trying to say, Tate, is that if I, if I also if I was Pep, I might think um, maybe. Jack Grealish could have done better things than he did in the latter stages of this game. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting that when Jack Grealish signed, the agreement was that he was no longer allowed to speak, but he was allowed to play. That There we go. That's my <laughs> little mermaid, mermaid connection. Mm. Uh, I, I do feel like, to Graham's point, I don't think the substitutions were necessarily like like horrifically detrimental or very obviously wrong, but I, I think there was maybe just that little bit of complacency with Man City in those final minutes 
But even then, it just still didn't feel like it was going to turn around. I, I had in my notes, and I think the commentators were talking about this at the time, that if anything, Ancelotti's changes had been detrimental to Real Madrid because they had basically meant, uh, left it so that there were so many attackers that there were these huge gaps between their lines. They didn't have as many people that could facilitate the transition to attack, but it also meant that they were wide open to be counted upon or to be kind of torn open with a few quick passes. And I, and I just wonder if maybe that game is nil-nil with Grealish on the ball, not trying to blame Jack Grealish, but does he have more runners? Does he have an overlap? Does he have somebody sitting at the top of the box that he could hit a lateral pass to, and now it's an easier shot on goal? I just wonder if there was that little bit easing off the gas, we've got this, we're going to be safe, and then Real Madrid get that one goal. And I think you can see at that point City just get nervous. You could see them not completing passes, not playing the way they needed to. They didn't have anybody to really, it felt like, calm them down and have everybody play the game they needed to play. And then fully by contrast, when Rodrigo gets his second and looks like we're headed for extra time, if you go back and watch, Carlo Ancelotti's celebration is as though he genuinely does have a deal with the devil in place and knew that was happening. It's just a like, yep, that's what was supposed to happen. It's like a nod. It's a little bit of a like pursed lips and he walks back to the to the uh, to the dugout. That's it. Like he is so calm and collected in that moment that if you are Real Madrid looking at your manager who's just sort of like, "Yep, I've been here before. I've seen it all. I've done it all. We're going to be fine." I have to believe that gives you that next level confidence versus maybe with Man City, there's a bit more panic in those dying moments. Yeah. It- and I, and I think that's an interesting contrast between Ancelotti and, and 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 Guardiola. I mean, is it potentially the case if we're going to shift this into discussion about Pep Guardiola and there's going to be some terrible takes about Pep Guardiola uh, swirling around Twitter over the next few days? But I do think it's fair to have a discussion about him, particularly because of that contrast between him and Ancelotti. And is it the case that Guardiola maybe tries to over control things? Might it might it be better to trust players to make their own decisions slightly more? And that's not me saying you go full vibes. But Ancelotti and even Klopp, to a certain extent, there is a degree of freedom. And when you watch Guardiola on the touchline, it's like he wants to have puppets for players a little bit. And I just wonder, when you get to the high-pressure environments, when you get to the crunch moments in competitions like the Champions League where the margins are so narrow, is that sort of stress good good for players? And there is there is a... There is a pattern now for Guardiola. I would argue that what happened last night at the Bernabeu, that can happen. That's a single match. As I say, I'm kind of at a loss to explain what, what went on there. But there there is a consistent pattern for Guardiola now. And if you look through the teams that City have lost to in the Champions League under Pep, Monaco, Liverpool, Spurs, Lyon, Chelsea, Real Madrid, there's some good teams in there. But in every single instance... City have been the favourites, sometimes strong favourites, even going back to that Liverpool game. Liverpool then aren't the team that they are today. The City were the favourites to beat them. You also have um, instances of Guardiola's teams lacking composure in the crunch moments when you look at how his teams have been eliminated from the Champions League at, at, at City, and even going back to when he was at Barcelona. And of his 11 eliminations from the Champions League as a manager... Eight of those eliminations have featured collapses. So you go 2010, they conceded, Barcelona conceded two goals in 13 minutes. 2014, three goals in 18 minutes. 2015, three goals in 17 minutes. 2017, two goals in eight minutes. 2018, three goals in 19 minutes. 2019, two goals in three minutes. 2020, two goals in eight minutes. 2022, last night, three goals in six minutes. So there is a consistent pattern, and that's why I do think it is fair to question maybe Guardiola's methods. He's obviously still one of the best ever, and his domestic record is astonishing. Nobody is better at winning a league title than him. 
But in the Champions League, there is there is something to scrutinise. So, so Graham, you're kind of saying Guardiola's like a micromanager who he's the, he's the boss at work who tells you when to have your tea break, whereas Ancelotti's the guy who checks in with you every three yeah. weeks to make sure that you're still alive. Basically. Yeah, exactly. And it feels like Ancelotti's method shouldn't work, but obviously at Real Madrid it, it, it definitely does. I think I think Klopp strikes me as a as a good middle ground. You look at his record in the Champions League, Klopp's made three Champions League uh, Champions League finals, sorry, in five seasons, and he's won it already. He could win it twice in four seasons. Um he doesn't he it still feels like there's a lot of overlap with someone like Guardiola and Klopp but maybe he doesn't have that micromanagement quality and there is a little bit more trust in his players than Guardiola. When you watch him on the sidelines last night and yeah, his his blood pressure must be rather high. Graham, it, like, uh, I'm going to go with another random analogy, but it, is it sort of, because I'm still trying to get my head around this because I agree with everything you've said. I agree with the stats, but I want to avoid the like, oh, Pep's teams just bottle it. They're panickers. And, and all I can figure is that if if you're talking about like a car from the 1970s versus a truck from the 1970s versus a truck from today. There's so many more features on that truck from today, and that's great, and it can lead to a greater performance vehicle, but it also means if you bump into something with your bumper and you have a backup cam, well, that's busted yeah. and it's going to cost $12,000 to fix versus a steel bumper on an old truck. You bumped into something, you're fine. And I just wonder yeah. if maybe all of that training, all of that, all those tactics, all of that preparation – it just means that there's more that can go wrong if something goes wrong versus with Real Madrid. Yeah, we're down 2 now, but like we'll find a way through. Back yourselves. You're all world-class athletes. But, like Maybe that works for yeah. Madrid. I'm not quite sure. Sorry. Can and, I, and to further that, on you go, Joe. No, okay. Sorry. I just wanted to jump in quickly. I, is there any of us that would rather be yesterday, if we put ourselves in, in Pep Guardiola's shoes or Carlo Ancelotti's shoes in the 89th minute, would any of us pick Carlo Ancelotti? Would any of us have backed Real Madrid in that moment? I guess that's that's what I struggle with in this whole conversation mm-hmm. is it feels like Pep Guardiola and Manchester City are being penalized for undergoing like just a complete freak of nature or being being on the other side of just a complete freak comeback. That's that's what it was, right? The the odds and, and even just our logical brains can figure out that, you know, something ridiculous happened and Manchester City was in the driver's seat in that moment. I, I would just never take Real Madrid's odds in that game with 10 minutes left over City's odds. And for me, yeah. if that's the case, and, and I would, if any of you guys disagree, that's fine. I, I don't fully understand that. But I would, I would pick Manchester City 10 times out of 10 yeah. and roll the dice. And sometimes the dice just aren't going to roll your way. Now, Graham, to your point, it is bizarre that the dice haven't rolled City's way or, or Pep's way so many times. And there is something there. But I just don't think there's something there in this game and in this tie. Anybody who watched this can realize just how improbable this was, how statistically improbable and ridiculous this was that Real Madrid got back in this game. And I I don't think Pep should be penalized for that. I don't think City should be penalized for that, really. And I don't know that this particular one fits into the grander discussion of Pep in the Champions League. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with anything you, you, you say, Joe. It's only... It's only the sample and going back through how yeah, this just keeps on happening. I, I feel like a little bit of a right-wing TV presenter just going, I'm just asking <laughs> questions, you know, not actually having a, any answers at all. I don't have any answers. And to to uh, further your analogy, Taylor, about the car, it feels like Ancelotti, when something's wrong with his team, he just pops the hood and he goes, oh, we need a new central defender. But when Pep Guardiola po- uh, pops the hood on his, uh, like, Tesla or whatever, I know Teslas don't actually have engines, but when he, he has to plug in, like, a diagnostics laptop, yeah. and it's just so much more complicated to try and work out what's going wrong i just can't yeah. shake 
the the opinion and the gut feeling that given the sample size and given how this keeps happening, not just to City, but to Pep's teams at Bayern Munich and at Barcelona, something is wrong. I can't figure out what it is because, Joe, everything you say is correct there. Like, the, the odds are always in City's favour. But if you have, if it keeps happening so many times, like, I think it does deserve an, a, a, a discussion about if something's going wrong. Yeah, and I think... Uh, Joe, maybe to to bring it home, like I I think ultimately, like you were saying, like I don't think Man City deserve to be like punished for this, or Pep deserves to be punished for that, and that to me is the confusing thing. It's that like I I agree with everything Graham said. It does seem to be this weird tendency to concede multiple goals in short order in different games in different years. But at the same time, you're absolutely right. I never would have uh, if offered the chance to be one of them in that moment. I definitely would have taken Pep, and I also. Still think Pep is one of the greatest managers of all time. I think he's in my top five for sure. And so it's just odd to talk about like this consistent issue that maybe also isn't an issue. It ends. It's one of the 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 things that I just have a really hard time coming up with any theory that isn't immediately debunked or immediately feels like I'm relying too much on recency bias. It's just it's a very confusing thing that might be a thing but also might not be a thing. Uh, and so I think we end up with a confusing narrative for Man City this season and a probably happier narrative for Real Madrid. T- Taylor, if, if Guardiola's in your top five managers of all time, mm-hmm. where do you rank Ancelotti then? This is his fifth Champions League final he's got to, the third time he's going to play Liverpool as well. And, you know, this is not long after he's won all of Europe's top five leagues as well. Does he get enough credit? He's No, he doesn't. Uh, he He would be, like, left off my list and then I would remember it. And be like, oh, Carlo, I'm so sorry. And he'd just be laying on a lounge chair like, oh, it's fine. No worries. I'm cool. <laughs> like, that that's about where he is. Because he is, I think, a person that we owe, or I at least overlook. And I think oftentimes a little bit similar to Bruce Arena. We all saw that comparison coming. Uh, th- there's an idea that, like, ah, oh, he doesn't care about tactics. Whereas Carlo Ancelotti, like, reinvented tactics in the 90s with Milan. So I think there's, there's like, he gets, maybe he doesn't get as much credit now as he deserves for tactics. But I think simultaneously, the way he's able to manage egos, get the best out of players, and if anything, push players like Vinicius Jr., like Karim Benzema, like Luka Modric, to even higher levels, I think he absolutely deserves to be in that conversation and should not be forgotten, shouldn't be left to just hang out on his lounge chair smoking his cigar. I think, Taylor, there's also an element that he's got an aura around him that maybe yeah. Pep doesn't yeah. have. Zidane had an It's aura, smoke right? is what it is. Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a, a haze of cigar smoke that follows him. I've been in his presence once in, in the in a mm-hmm. hotel lobby in Chicago on a Bayern Munich preseason tour, and he sat on the table next to me and had a conversation in Italian with a, with an Italian mm-hmm. colleague of his and obviously I know who he was and I was like wow that's Carlo Ancelotti sitting next to me but also he did have this presence yeah. and just by sitting there having a tiny Italian coffee in a lobby he, you could feel that he had a presence and I, I think that players did you have your big venti Starbucks <laughs> and he had his tiny <laughs> I had triple a shot orange macchiato frappuccino <laughs> yeah, that's right yeah. oh. Ryan <laughs> I, I know what you mean uh, the only time I've, I've been around him was in one of those preseason friendlies here in the States and he was it was when he was with Chelsea maybe I can't remember but he, it, was, it was a player that was uh, like maybe it was Pato was expected to leave or stay or something along those lines and it was I think he'd answered this question three days in a row about what's going to happen, what's going to happen. And he kept saying, you know, we have to wait. Time will tell. We don't know. And he got it in the press conference. He said that same answer. And then a couple questions later, he got the same question, basically. And he stared at the journalist for maybe 20 seconds and then said, 
it's a problem for you to wait in this very like friendly, but also stop asking me. And it was like the silence, like letting the silence stand combined with just how calmly he dismissed the question without actually being angry, but definitely conveyed the no one asked me this again or there will be consequences. I'm with you. He's got this sort of calm demeanor that also shows the strength behind it. And I wonder if maybe that does kind of play into what he's able to bring uh, to the touchline in those dying moments where if you look to him and he's just giving you clear instruction and backing you to make something happen as you're about to sub on, maybe that's a little bit more digestible than having to kind of flip through a chart of the 19 different positions you need to be in in the 15 different scenarios you might encounter. Maybe that's uh, exaggerating. It probably is when it comes to what Pep is demanding of his players, but I can see how that aura would play a part in his overall prestige and ability. Definitely. I wish I was at that press conference, by the way. That sounds like Bane energy. Do you feel like you're in control? (laughs) Not dissimilar. Not dissimilar from that level of like, he might murder you, but right now he's staying calm. (laughs) Excellent stuff. Well, Real Madrid through to the Champions League final to meet Liverpool. We're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about that game a little bit. And of course, Seattle's big victory last night as well. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Okay, on Saturday, May 28th at 3 Eastern in Paris, we will see Liverpool play the team who lost their Champions League home opener to Sheriff Tiraspol of Moldova, lest we forget. <laughs> oh my god. I forgot gosh. that happened. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> that was a thing. That was, yeah. Uh, look where we are now. Look how far we've come, Graham. Uh, that game happening in Paris. A replay of the 2018 final from Ukraine, of course, which Real Madrid won 3 1. Gareth Bale had quite a time there. He's been well-rested, that's all I'm saying. He could come out and shine in this one. You never know. Uh, Also a replay of the 1981 final, which was in Paris, by the way. Liverpool won that one. 1-0. Joe, what do you think about this? Personally, I am pleased, just as as a neutral, that we've got a pan-European game here because it's not Liverpool-Man City, even though they might have been the two best teams, uh, that we've got a bit of variation here. Is that fair? The variation is fun, and Ryan, I'm totally with you, and I think the game is just set up to be fun. Now, I know finals, and we talked about this earlier, have a tendency to be less fun than a lot of other games. That's just kind of how it works. Teams don't want to make as many mistakes, and they tend to be a little more timid, but I, I don't know if either one of these teams has that. I mean, I think, I think they can, for stretches, be a little more defensive and reactive, but... Real Madrid are pure vibes. They'll go out there and they'll step forward and center backs will run all over the place and Vinicius Jr. will run in the complete opposite direction as we already discussed. Like They are just chaos in how they play and it's great TV. And Liverpool, for their part, 
We talked about how aggressive uh, they are and how much that's a part of their identity as a team and as a club. I think this is set up to be a really entertaining game. Tons of star power, two very different approaches to soccer, which I think makes games fun. Uh, yeah, it could be a very entertaining game, Graham. Uh, so a tight 1-0 that isn't so interesting then in the end? <laughs> I mean, European Cup finals tend to be a little bit like that, as as we discussed at the top of the show. But honestly, I, I would be surprised. And I'm I'm totally with the two of you on being quite glad that Real Madrid are there because they are brilliant TV. I liken it to... I watched two shows recently, and I liked both of those shows, and one of them was Severance, and the other one was a show called We Crashed, about the WeWork disaster. And Severance was objectively a much better show, uh, their Manchester City, but We Crashed was the one I enjoyed more because they just did silly things like Jared Leto's putting on an accent, and like Anne Hathaway has just got brilliant energy and vibes in it, and like that was a poorer, a, like a worse written show, but it was much more entertaining. That's Real Madrid, and I, I would rather watch them in this final than than City. As for Liverpool, I think they're probably quite pleased that Real Madrid are the team that they have got because uh, City, as I say, are just a, a better drilled, better coached team. And also they could probably have have uh, predicted that Real Madrid would make the final because I found out the strange quirk about Liverpool in European Cup finals. So they've ma- now made um, 10 European Cup finals and every single one of those Cup finals, they've played a team in white, which is cool. quite strange. Gladbach, Club Bruges, Real Madrid, Roma... Juventus is, a, is maybe cheating because obviously they're black and white, but they were wearing white shorts in 1985. AC Milan, AC Milan, Real Madrid, Tottenham, and now Real Madrid again. Wow, would you look at that? That's a great coincidence. And by the <laughs> way, thanks, uh, Graham. Apple TV Plus thanks you for um, promoting their slate of shows on, on the pod here. Uh, <laughs> uh, Taylor, what, what are you making of this one? What do you think is going to go down here? Are we going to get a treat of a game here when Liverpool playing a team in white once again? Uh I, I, I'm still dumbfounded by what Graham just said. Not Sorry, Ryan, I will answer your question, but like not because of any of the intricacies of it, but because Graham has also just said that he watched two TV series on top of the movies he watched, on top of all the games <laughs> he watched. I was about to spoil a movie. I'm not going to spoil it, but I will ask this. Graham, do you have an identical twin brother that we don't know about who like doubles <laughs> for you on occasion, and that's how you're able to do all this? Great. Uh, people Grand do say Ruffin. I look like my brother. Yeah, he's, he's four years younger. But uh, no, I, we're, I don't have a twin, though. No. Are you followed around by a shabby assistant who looks vaguely like you but has makeup on to disguise that? Uh, well, yeah, that's Ryan. <laughs> Here we go. Now, now I've got questions. Now I've got questions. Just a bit uh, concealer, Graham, that's all. <laughs> I'm very excited about this final, though. I think it's going to be very open uh but i also think lots of little things could happen in it because we know real madrid can play on the break and like to counterattack uh high lines especially high lines that have fullbacks committed to the attack as we talked about with vinnie jr dropping in to then be there as the outlet uh, that seems like a thing that liverpool will have pretty often so i think there will be opportunities for real madrid certainly to attack but certainly uh chances for liverpool to play their game and press and cause chaos and get shots and i think this could be a very open back-and-forth game with lots of goals. It could be a very open back-and-forth game with very few goals. I don't see it being a sort of turgid, everybody on their half and nobody really doing that much sort of game. And so for that reason, if nothing else, I'm very excited that these two teams are in the final. Graham, uh, to extend your TV and entertainment um, analogies there, we could get a, a Jared Leto in uh, We Crashed, you know, Quite a, an interesting and wild game with a bit of personality. Uh-huh. Or we could get Jared Leto in House of Gucci. Off oh, no. the rails madness. That's what I want from this game. 
Yeah, but there, there, there becomes there's a line of madness where you don't want to cross <laughs> that line, and maybe House of Gucci was was beyond that line. So Good. let's keep it in the wee crash realm. Yeah, his his accent, his Israeli accent, may be better than his Italian accent. Enough Jared Leto talk for one yeah, podcast. Yeah, I whichever said. team isn't Jared Leto, that's the team that I think is going to win. <laughs> <laughs> that's smart. Taylor. That's the team you want to win as well. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah, yeah let's stop talking about him. Um. Well, let's talk about the CONCACAF Champions League. Seattle Sounders 3, Pumas nil. Seattle, Seattle winning 5-2 on aggregate, the first MLS side to win this iteration of the competition. Joe, a great day for America, therefore a great day for the world. Yeah, is that, <laughs> I think that's how it works. Ryan, you're yeah. the right person to say that. This is a historic achievement for Seattle. No MLS team has ever won this competition in its modern format before. Thanks, it's been... <laughs> try after try, error after error, and it just hasn't been done. There's been a number of other MLS teams in the finals that have, that have been unable to clear that last hurdle. RSL, Montreal, Toronto, LAFC, Seattle is the team that finally did it. Now, they did it against a Pumas team that's maybe not the best that Liga Mekis has to offer. They're, they're not the best that Liga Mekis has to offer, but it's done, and it's still something that no MLS team has done before, and I just appreciate from this game, and really from this, from this tie, that Seattle did it Seattle's way. They did it in a very Sounders-esque way. And I wrote this after the game. You know, it started in a lot of Seattle's on-ball play was defined by Nico Ladera moving and, and dragging Pumas' number six around the field. And it was also Albert Rusnak and at the beginning, Jao Paulo. Then he goes off injured and it's 16-year-old homegrown Obed Vargas who comes on and plays in the double pivot in Schmetzer's 4-2-3-1. Those players move and pull Pumas around. And, and it's not like they created a ton of really clear-cut chances from that kind of play. But the first goal did indirectly come from that. Raul Rui Diaz's uh, goal in the first half comes from a free kick. But before that free kick, it's Nico Ladero drifting towards the left side to create space for himself. And I think that's a brilliant bit of play that defines how the Sounders want to play. Then, then another piece of this is the depth. I mentioned Obed Vargas coming off the bench. He wasn't the only player to come off the bench inside the first 30 minutes. Kellen Rowe comes on to play left back for Nuhu who goes off with some sort of quad injury in the 11th minute. And so it's two starters that Seattle's down, two sub windows that they're down in the first half. And so Brian Schmetzer's, you know, handicapped a little bit in the moves he can make, but it didn't matter. The depth did the job. Vargas was was fine and, and finds really good as a 16-year-old in the biggest game that he's ever played in. That's that's a Seattle thing to do. They are deep and their roster is so deep. And Garth Lagerway has done a great job building this team. So there's the depth and the last bit, the last two goals in this 3-0 win come from transition. The first one comes after Pumas are, are pushed all the way forward, and they have some some rest defense in place, Pumas do. But Seattle break down the right side, Jordan Morris gets in behind, and it's another goal for the Sounders, and they're up 2-0. And the game's pretty much over at that point. Then Nico Ladero puts the, the finishing touch on this whole thing with another goal in transition that comes from some good counterpressing on that left side. So it just felt like a very Seattle thing in how they performed. It was a very Seattle win. They did it their way. And for them to be the first team to ever win CCL, the first MLS team to ever win CCL, that feels fitting and proper for Major League Soccer as a whole, too. Yes, it does indeed. Uh, Taylor, this one kicking off at 4 a.m. Rome time, inconveniently. Uh, did you catch this? Uh, yes, because He's for me it was just, it was just 10 p.m. time, which made it uh, way easier. Uh, I did have a game. And you mean you don't keep the same hours as me, Taylor? I, I, try, I, I try not to, but, you know, sometimes I'm up till 4 a.m. Uh, I did have an indoor game at 9 o'clock and rushed home uh, to watch this one. Did make it in time. I think I was maybe like five minutes late. But I watched the whole thing, and it was really fun. I found myself just smiling by the end. I don't know why. Like, I'm not a huge Seattle fan. I think I'm just happy that an MLS, an MLS team won it. But I think also... 
to have the Marshawn Lynch video and the stadium full and it be this Seattle team as well. As Joe talked about, there's just so many solid players. They're such a well-built team, and they have so many players that I think are just like enjoyable to root for. Now, I say that as a non-Portland, non-Vancouver <laughs> native. That might be different if you're from those places. But somebody like Raul Ruiz Diaz, who has, uh, what, a brace in this one, uh, I think gets the assist as well for uh, Ladero's goal. Or no, he doesn't, but deserves it because he, uh, I, I tweeted this one, he's trying to get on the end of it, loses his footing, realizes Ladero's going to shoot, realizes he is in an offside position, and if it hits him, the goal will not count. So Ruiz Diaz curls up into the fetal position, and the shot goes over him and into the net, and that made me very, very happy. Uh, I, I really enjoy a player like Raul Ruiz Diaz for this team. Joe, it makes me wonder... Where would he be on your list of like best all-time designated players? Because I, I think, uh, similar to Carlo Angelotti and Pep, he's in my top five. He has got to be up there, for sure. Yeah. I don't know if he's exactly top five. He's a little behind Nicoladero for me, maybe maybe even a, a more than a little behind Nicoladero. But you're looking at those guys, maybe some of the, the older MLS DPs that were around mm-hmm. in the earlier stages of that DP rule. And then I think in more recent MLS history, you're looking at Giovinco, you're looking at Almiron, and you're looking at Joseph Martinez, and, and Diego Valeria, I should add to that group too. But they are certainly, if we, if we tier it, Taylor, instead of you know, maybe number rank it, Ladero is definitely in that top tier. And I think it's, it's hard not to put Rui Diaz in that group too after all that he has done for this team and all the goals that he's scored. What uh, I just heard Joe say, I just want to make sure we heard this clearly. Joe is saying that Raul Ruiz Diaz moves uh, Diego Valeri out of the list of top uh, designated players. So a Seattle player right. comes in, Portland player goes out. Joe Lowry said that. Email any complaints about that to Taylor at TotalSoccerShow.com. <laughs> and- <laughs> uh, Graham, we, we've got an MLS team in the Club World Cup now, or yeah. maybe we do because maybe. Yeah. I don't even know when this Club World Cup's going to happen because it's not going to happen while the World Cup's on. It's not going to happen this summer. Oh, that's a it's, point. It's supposed to be in China this time around, and it's also supposed to be the expanded 2014 mm-hmm. edition. Yeah. Uh, but none of those details are confirmed, it's, and the timing's not confirmed either. So Seattle will be in this contest. We're not sure when, but yay. I mean, I would be genuinely quite gutted if the Club World Cup doesn't happen next year, the year that an MLS team is, is, is meant to be in it. Because as much as, and I'm not trying to downplay Seattle's achievement because it's fantastic, genuinely. Um, but it, it's been spoken about for so many years, an MLS team winning CCL, that it kind of feels like that that episode of The Simpsons where Bart has, to, Bart has to recreate the catch. And by the time he actually recreates the catch, there's like 10 people in the stadium and they go, yay, like, <laughs> because it's taken him so long. The bit I was excited for, not that I wasn't excited about CCL, but the bit I was really excited for was seeing an MLS team against South American teams and and uh, a, a European team, potentially a Premier League team, and a, and a competitive setting because we've never seen that before in the Club World Cup in its current form. Um, so yeah, I, I'm hopeful that for the first time ever I might actually care about Club World the Club World Cup. So it would be quite fitting if they cancelled it. Well, congratulations <laughs> to Seattle for helping you to care about that tournament, Graham. Uh, good, good job <laughs> to them. Uh, also, a sixty-eight thousand—that was the real prize. Yeah, that's what they were after. Um, their crowd in Seattle, sixty-eight thousand seven hundred forty-one, um, a record for any CCL game ever. And only, Joe, about 6,000 short of what Charlotte FC can get to a regular season game. So good luck for them. Well done. Charlotte stays winning. Charlotte stays winning. Yes, it does. And you know who else stays winning? Us. We done a podcast, guys. Thank you very much for joining me. Joe, an absolute pleasure as always. By the way, would you like to um, tell the folk about your new little venture? I would love to. Thanks, Ryan. Um, so I have I've started along with a number of other really wonderful folks 
a website, a new website covering American soccer called Backheeled. So it's backheeled.com spelled exactly like the word backheel is. So that's pretty straightforward. Our goal is to, to cover American soccer in different and unique ways. So one example of that is I watched the CCL final last night and I wrote up a tactical analysis on it. And, and it's not just tactics. So if that's not your jam, I, I'd still recommend reading it. But it's something that I don't think anybody else is doing. So we have NWSL coverage of, of the Challenge Cup already out. We have a piece on a, a young U.S. youth national team player who's a dual national, I should add, playing in USL right now that, uh, that is really, really good. There's pieces. There is a piece about Charlotte, Ryan. Uh, it's not the most positive, but I think that's a fair reflection of how the start has been. Uh, Adam Bells is in there writing about the U.S. Uh, men's national team. So it's it's a really great, uh, really great thing. I'm really excited about the launch. Hopefully people are excited about it, too. You can go in and ask questions. We're going to answer questions each day of the week as well. That's a huge part of it. So myself, Adam Snavely, John Morrissey, Ariana Cascone. Uh, Justin Egan, there's a whole whole squad of us up in there. So I'm, I'm super excited about it, Ryan, and thanks for giving me the chance to plug. Oh, thanks, Joe. Sounds very excited. I'm looking forward to reading all but one of the articles that are currently <laughs> live. Um, Graham, thank you very much for your time on this podcast, sir, and for indulging my Disney references. <laughs> thank you, Ryan Bailey. I very much enjoyed them. And Joe, good luck with the site. Thanks. We'll, we'll all be looking uh, out for it. And um, yeah, I'll be reading loads on that. Genuinely, uh, it's going to be a, a go-to for me. And Big T, another classic pod from you, sir. Well done. I try. Well done to you, my friend. Well done to all of us. And well done, listener. Thank you very much for making it this far. We'll be back on the feed very soon. But for now, bye. Bye.